Welcome to To Your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church, and I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey, everybody. So week 22, some Old Testament readings from multiple books, and then we get into one of the long, well, the longest uh, prophet, certainly, um, in Jeremiah. And so, uh, but we pick up in 2 Kings 25, and um, we get basically the fall of Judah. Uh, we have a king who decides to rebel against the Babylonian king, which just does not turn out well uh, for someone who has so much more power. Um, And Jerusalem gets sieged. Uh, and the king Zedekiah, ultimately him and his family get caught and his sons are killed before him before his eyes are gouged out and then he's taken away into captivity. And so uh, it's a pretty harsh end to their time. And then we hear certainly that the temple is ransacked and destroyed in the process, which does create a little bit of a theological crisis for the Israelites. I mean, God has dwelt in a tent and then in a temple uh, for a long time. And now it's sort of like, okay, God doesn't have a house now. What does that mean for us? And not only that, but like, our, our nation has been defeated in, in the wholeness. Does that mean God's defeated? Where is God now? Um, and so uh, important questions for the Israelites to have to wrestle through. I think what we read here feels hopeless initially, but in verse 21, there's this phrase where it says, so Judah was taken into exile out of its land. And that possessive with its land, I think, gives us hope and gives us promise that God is not yet done working. Uh, For a while, it would be Babylon's land, but we can trust God to continue to work with Judah and with this specific land. So a governor is put over Judah, uh, put there by the Babylonians, and eventually Ishmael and various companies decide to take out the governor that's put there by the Babylonians. And so uh, a bunch of the Israelites are suddenly worried that there's going to be a retaliation. And so they run away to Egypt. And that's what we see. Yeah. And it makes sense. I was telling Chris before we got on the podcast that I had never really paid attention to this flight to Egypt before, but we've read so much in the prophets about like trusting in Egypt and not going down to Egypt. And now I understand why. Yeah. And so uh, there's this king that was ousted from actually last week's reading, uh, the week before last week, I guess. And uh, But we do find out after 37 years that he's been in exile and he gets released and ultimately actually gets treated well by sort of the next Babylonian king in line. Uh, and that's good news. Uh, this line of Judah, uh, this promised seed of David, is not ultimately going to be broken. It's kind of how we actually finished the letter, the sort of moment of hope or promise. Yeah. So we get to look forward to see what God is going to do through the line of David. So final thoughts on first and second Kings, the scroll of the Kings. Yeah. Didn't first of all, like, didn't it just feel so good to finally finish it? We've been reading it for so long. (laughs) I think the thing I primarily pulled out of it is just God's faithfulness to his chosen people. We see more sorrow and tragedy and mistakes and success, but God remains faithful to his people and he sovereignly works despite their sin and the fact that they don't deserve it at all. I, one of the Bible's commentaries I read is the gospel transformation Bible. And there's this line in it that I want to read. It says, never forget the theme that runs through the book of Kings for the sake of my servant, David. This is our only hope too, that God will deal with us according to the merits of another David, the true and better David, King Jesus. Seek that refuge to which this book points from such judgments as this book records. Yeah. And, and it's important to remember, I mean, we're talking for about 400 years or so of history. And so, um, and, and just by words alone, this is like half the size of your average novel today. And so it's like trying to fit American history into a half size novel. That's what we get in the King. So it's definitely very condensed, even though it felt like it took forever. Um, but this book, this kind of book just makes me appreciate 
the Bible and, and sort of the, the God inspired part of the Bible that much more like the history of God's chosen elect people is this, the story fraught with mess and failed Kings and idolatry, family feuds. And it's, it's unique. Like at its heights, Israel still was never all that high. Mm-hmm. And, and with Kings like picking up, particularly after David, it just covers so much mess and there's lessons about idolatry and God's zeal for his name. Yes. And consequences for sin, but there's also God kind of constantly in the midst of that mess sort of, still working and particularly in the Southern kingdom with Judah, like there's a promise and no amount of mess is ultimately going to thwart that goal. And, and so we, we see that thread kind of existing throughout the Kings as well. Yeah. The second Chronicles. Uh, so we're going to jump back in time. Just kind of, that's just how we chopped it up. And so uh, jumping back a little, Josiah takes the throne at eight, tears down all the stuff, uh, all the idolatry stuff at 20 decides to renovate the temple and yeah. There's a real emphasis, I think, in Chronicles and what we read about Josiah working to purify both kingdoms. He invites the northern kingdoms to participate in this. And so again, with Chronicles looking at this idea of reuniting the kingdom and restoring temple worship, it's really worth celebrating that Josiah is finally um, one of the kings who wants to reunite the kingdoms under Yahweh's rule. Yep. And surprise, surprise, they find this book and mm-hmm. uh, ultimately are... Um, as they find this book, uh, we we get into um, the, the the sort of next section, but the with the Huldah and as a prophet, prophet. But if the book is found, and likely it's it's as many commentators think, it's probably the book of Deuteronomy, but it may be the whole Torah itself. But um, the book of Deuteronomy has this whole section, and you can go back and read it in Deuteronomy twenty eight. That's that's pretty harsh. Of hear all the blessings that come with obedience, and hear all the curses that come with obedience, and um, and that's Huldah actually kind of points to like look all the things you read yes those things are going to come to pass like the lord's going to scatter you amongst the peoples from one end of the earth to the other and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone which neither your fathers have known like all the sort of stuff that comes with that and at some point i think when josiah's reading that going oh no like <laughs> this is what's going to happen like now we know like we've been missing this but now we know um and so josiah sort of has this large public reading and it's almost like a bit of enactment like when moses gets the law mm-hmm. he goes down there and reads it for everybody and Joshua, when they get to the promised land, they set, they separate out on the two mountains and have this whole blessing and cursing conversation. I think Josiah does this. Ezra is going to do this in some ways. And so um, there's like this large scale reenactment of the Sinai moment for Josiah going, oh, no, we need to do this. We need to lay out what God requires. Let's talk about the blessings and curses. Yeah. I think the in Holda's prophecy, I think the intersection of individual versus corporate faith is really interesting. She talks about how all of Israel will be punished and come under God's wrath because of the faithlessness of the kings of Judah. However, Josiah as an individual will be spared because of his humble obedience. And I don't think I haven't fully explored even what that means in modern day and us um, as a nation, you know, having certain sins and also as individuals, either having sins or having faithfulness. But there is a, a corporate responsibility and also individual responsibility for our actions. Yeah. And so, uh, but Josiah, they practice the Passover, they have a celebration. Um, and, and sometimes we read about like, Passover and animal sacrifices, maybe the solemnness of Passover night. We think about that, but at the same, at the same time, like this is their 4th of July celebration. Mm-hmm. Like this is a party for them. And I think there's a, sort of the celebration of liberation, v- slavery, bondage, and I'm glad they're doing it. But like, I, I think sometimes, at least in my mind, sometimes when I think about like a Passover celebration, it becomes a little more solemn and, and theme. And uh, I, I think that this is much more like, gosh, remember how God led us out of Egypt? Like let's keep celebrating. And yeah. so, yeah. 
so it happens but then uh, josiah um decides to uh, interfere with this pharaoh this king from egypt who's uh, going up uh, to deal with the uh, the Babylonians and uh, the Pharaoh even tells him like, look, like God told me to go attack this other group. And so my beef, it's not with you, Judah. I don't know why you're attacking me, but if you decide to attack me, you're basically opposing God himself. And Josiah, even though he was a good King decides to ignore all this and decides to keep attacking, which ultimately brings doom to Josiah. We, or I really like Josiah. He's great, but he still makes mistakes and there are massive consequences to those mistakes. It's such a good picture of the battle and the tension all of us in Christ feel of walking by the spirit versus walking by the flesh. Yeah. And, and hold his prophecy. Like it, since Josiah is alive, it seems like there's some sparing of the people, but after Josiah dies, like everything will go back downhill. And so, um, Josiah's mm-hmm. death will be greatly mourned. Jeremiah is going to write a song about it. Everybody's going to keep singing it. Josiah is this great reformer, but now this is where Holda's prophecy will now come true. Like, and, and so, uh, Josiah's death becomes like the, the transition back to chaos and, and we see it. Right. We see it with Judah's decline, but we also see that God reiterates that, He says, I have sent people and I have sent reminders to you to invite you to repent and turn from your sin, but you are rejecting me. You are rejecting the prophets. And so you're going to reap the consequences of that. Yep. And so Jehoahaz gets three months uh, before the king of uh, Egypt shows up, takes control, kicks him out, uh, puts Jehoiakim in charge. And uh, the arrangement's fine with Egypt until basically Egypt starts losing to the Babylonians. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar's not happy about the arrangement between Israel and Egypt. Uh, they take Jehoiakim into captivity. And so, um, yeah. And, and, Jeho- and then the next guy in charge, uh, Jehoiachin, is only eight, uh, but he also ends up in captivity. And then Zedekiah, Zedekiah takes over ignores Jeremiah, ignores the other prophets, rebels against Nebuchadnezzar, which is not a good setup. And it's not just Zedekiah. The author really goes out of his way to be like, look, all of Judah was just a mess. Like, yes, they have bad kings, but Judah's doing this too. Mm, yeah. And Jerusalem's destroyed. By the end, uh, the people just wouldn't listen. They pollute the temples, alien gods. They taunt God's prophets. So God kind of brings brings the heat through uh, the Babylonians. And um, I, I kind of like, this is where there's the promise of 70 years, which also Jeremiah says. And so um, this, I, I kind of like this Sabbath rest idea. Cause if you take the time frame, it's about, I don't know, somewhere around maybe 490 years between David and ultimately the restoration. And um, if they're supposed to Sabbath for every seven years and uh, that's like 490 years, you divide by seven, that should be 70. And so um, this, this, this missing time that, that, that the kingdom has been divided, the kingdom has been fighting, they've been idolatrized, like all the ways that they probably haven't experienced the shalom, the peace, the rest of God. Mm-hmm. God's now like, okay, I, I need, I need to kick you all out. I need, I need the land to heal and to be restored and to be prepared for your return. And, and so, um, yeah, so God's going to do that so that there's this, this return in some ways to the Sabbath and healed land. Right. So even in the exile and deportation, God is working his will and kingdom rule. Sabbath is a command from God, also a promise and a gift from God. And I and really an identifier of the character of God. And so when the people neglect it, God continues to enforce it. And then a reminder that this book comes much later uh, after the return, but the proclamation of Cyrus that the the Persians ultimately come to town. So the the Babylonians eventually get their defeat Uh, and the Persians uh, don't rule the same way. I think the Babylonians have this sort of um, 
syncretistic uh, idea like that, that, that we can get rid of a people group by just bringing them into captivity, having them intermarry and we'll ultimately get rid of them. Um, and the Persians have a very different practice. They, they, yes, they conquer and maintain control, but they, um, their desire, just like kind of Rome with Israel, um, is to maintain peace. So if you want to worship your other gods, okay, it's fine as long as you maintain peace with us and probably keep paying us some money. And so um, Cyrus is fine with the Israelites building their temple as long as they don't start some fights and they pay to money to Persia. And so, uh, but we'll get there with Nehemiah and Ezra at the rebuilding of the temple. Yeah. So that's the end of Chronicles. And I think it ends abruptly and it feels incomplete when you finish it. But the author was strategic in doing this because it's a reminder that the story of Israel and God's glory is not over yet. This is the abrupt ending of this is meant to point that there's still a story to tell around a future Messiah and a future temple. Yeah. And if you are reading the, the Jewish ordering of the old Testament. So if you're a Jew and you're reading through your uh, collection of old Testament books, this is the final, this is how it it ends. The sort of hopeful, rebuilding of the temple, restoration of the kingdom kind of idea. Final thoughts? I really enjoyed reading Chronicles alongside Kings and comparing what was and wasn't emphasized. Chronicles just to me seems like a rallying cry, a story meant to lift the eyes of those who are downhearted and to encourage them to remember the faithfulness and goodness and worthiness of a God who is worth worshiping. We see God's regular presence in Israel and consistent reminders that his will is his best for his people. I'm also reminded that Jesus is a better king and ruler, and with the end of this book, grateful that I have an understanding about this Messiah, and that I, along with the rest of the body of Christ, am a new temple. So we, as believers now, get to be some of the fulfillment of what this author was dreaming about and anticipating. Yeah, and and just noting how that book ends, um, I always find it interesting how kind of accents the same way at the end of 28 and you're just sort of left hanging. It doesn't summarize it. It's like, okay, well, the church kept going. Paul went to Rome, the end. And, um, as if, and, and our church is part of a network called Acts 29. The idea that the story of Acts continues through the life of the churches as, as they continue to, to multiply and grow and the gospel goes forth. And so Chronicles feels a little bit like that. Like, we are continuing the story of God now. We're remembering where we've been. We've been through the mess of unfaithfulness. And, and now we're back, and there was a temple, and there was a priesthood, and there was all these things. Like We are a continuation of the story. And as we restore some of these things, we were a continuation, that, that idea for the Israelites. And, and so much about their identity as a people. The, the, what does it mean to be God's people? What does it mean to have a temple and a priesthood? What are these pictures of good and awful kings? And what should we concern ourselves with? And just sort of that, that sense of let's remember and 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 the way that we might have to, or probably should read the new testament in the same sort of way like this is our identity this is our story and we're the continuation of this and what does that really mean for us what what does and, and all the more reason why we don't dismiss the old testament as believers to mm-hmm. go okay like as god's chosen and holy people or as the people who god dwelled with in a temple now that we are a temple like what does that mean for us and what did that mean for them and so um helping us sort of sometimes understand the full breadth of what god has been doing um and who we are because of him yeah so jeremiah uh, so we get to 
a long prophet. Uh, so we're going to be reading this for the next few weeks. So uh, buckle up. Uh, yeah. And uh, it's always interesting, uh, some of these namesakes for these books, because we read them, and it's, it's some guy's name, and we name kids after them. And so, um, but Jeremiah literally means Yahweh will rise. And so for a book uh, to, to be named after Jeremiah, or the prophet to have this name, and for it to trigger that one. We always think of the weeping of Jeremiah. That's, that's a common idea um, when people associate with Jeremiah, but there's also the sense of hope, which we do get in this book. And mm-hmm. um, Jeremiah was quite young uh, growing up in Josiah's time. So he's watched Josiah make these reforms. And then he also saw just Israel kind of fall apart and we're kind of, kind of the mess, the instability, the idolatry. And so he has seen, faithful leaders and unfaithful leaders. And at some point he's speaking to all that going like, look, this is not okay. And we can, we can repent. We can reform. We've seen it a little bit before. Let's, let's make sure we don't lose what what started happening under Josiah. So, um, and the book covers a vast amount of time. There's some pre-Assyrian or pre-Babylon times. There's definitely some time in teaching about time in Babylon or some post-Babylonian time frame. And so, um, there's just a lot going on. And, um, yeah. And so Jeremiah's going to be rejected. There's people who are going to not listen to him. Um, and luckily he doesn't end up with like, I told you so. He sort of ends up going, you know what? It's still going to be okay. We're going to come back from this. Um, it's filled with nature. There's images of all sorts of nature images. Uh, it's quoted a lot through Jesus. Likely if you think of uh, a, a nature image or um, almost any major metaphor, there might be some connection to Jeremiah in there. A couple other things to note, just as you read through, Jeremiah suffered tremendously in fulfilling his calling, and we get some really personal glimpses into what it looked like for him to obey God. And he is the first one to use specifically the language new covenant. So we'll talk a little bit probably about covenant theology or just this idea of a new covenant when we hit that part in Jeremiah. And the book is not written chronologically, so it's going to be confusing to you if you try to read it like it's happening in order of time. Yep. So the call of Jeremiah is likely pretty young, maybe like 17 or so, um, called to be a prophet. Uh, and God assures him, look, before you were even born, this was the plan. Like your age is not going to be a hindrance. I've got this. And, and to eat, just drive him to point, God touches Jeremiah's mouth, the sort of symbolism of the role of the prophet, the, the mouthpiece, uh, to the world of God's mouthpiece. And so, um, and there's immediate symbolism starting in there. There's a almond tree, there's a boiling pot that's tilting towards the North. And, um, it's, it's interesting cause almond in Hebrew is the word watch. Uh, so, um, basically Jeremiah's like, watch, watch, watch what God, God's, God saying, now watch what I'll do. Like my word, what my word has said, my word will not fail here. And this boiling pot that God makes clear is Babylon coming from the North. And so, um, he, he encourages Jeremiah, look, you're going to have to be this unwavering pillar, like willing to speak to faith in the truth speak truth in the face of this opposition, which he's going to have to do moving forward. Something that's pretty neat about Jeremiah one is that it kind of provides an outline or a structure for the whole book. So keep a marker in it. And as you continue to read through Jeremiah and have questions about what's going on or what he's doing, just flip back to chapter one and get kind of the outline of, okay, this is what Jeremiah's call was. And this is what he was to do. And so Israel forsakes the Lord. Jeremiah uses some great imagery here. Uh, There's definitely themes of being a bride in the desert or uh, being like this field that's been picked over, like field of fruit that's been picked over by robbers, runaway bride, all this. And God essentially says to them, like, look, I I led you out of Egypt to be my people. Why have you forgotten me? And why are you worshiping other gods? And he even points out, like, look, do, do the other countries abandon their gods? No, like they're still doing Baal worship and they're still doing Asherah worship. Like, 
yet you guys so easily burn or uh, leave me behind. And so uh, he, he, he uses the analogy too of the cisterns. Like you keep going to these sisters. Sisters are like these giant wells. Maybe I'll include a picture in the podcast. These like underground cut out stone places where you store water. It's for basically like a town or a village or, and, and so um, that's where water would be large amounts of water. And he says like, you keep going down to these cisterns that are broken. They have no water in them and you find them to be dry. Like all these other things that you're pursuing ultimately bring no life to you yet. You keep going back to them. It's sort of this beautiful image. I think that, that he's pointing out to the people. It's because their idolatry is because their trust in Egypt and Assyria. Um, he keeps reminding them that they were like this tended vine that just suddenly became wild or even more sort of uh, poignant, this animal in heat, just waiting for any partner to come along uh, for it. It's, and so, um, and, and God kind of wraps up here and says, you want help? You want help right now? Go ask your new gods for help. Like I'm, I'm tired of it and, and you've messed up and time's up. So as we read Hebrew poetry, remember that a lot of, in, in English poetry, lots of times the words rhyme, and Hebrew po- poetry focuses a lot more on the pictures and the images. So that verse 13, my people have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. We see this comparison between empty cisterns and the fountain of living waters. And it just causes me to reflect about times that I have put my trust in broken cisterns, whether relationships or jobs or financial status or whatever. And then think about how pointless that is when I have access to the fountain of living waters that will never run dry. And so the invitation here, as always, is to lean into the Lord, put our trust and our hope in in our Father who will care for us in a way that these cisterns never could. And so, uh, but let's jump to New Testament. We get into Colossae and Colossians, and uh, it's a smaller city in history, history, one that even still has not quite been excavated to this day. We know where it is. It's just no one's paid to do the work. And so um, some of the cultural guesses of exactly what's going on have to be kind of made as you read this letter and kind of what we know from writings at the time. And so there's a lot of parallels to the book of Ephesians that you'll probably notice. Um, Certainly the struggle is a little bit different there. So Ephesus had a struggle between how Jews and Gentiles got along and stuff like that. There was some of that that Paul sort of unpacks theologically in the opening few chapters and then deals with old and new self and family and like the order of the house or children and parents and uh, eventually slaves and masters, all that kind of stuff. And we're going to see some of that as Colossae goes, but um, or as Colossians goes, but probably the big deal here is Gnosticism. That seems to be one of the most influential things. And I mean, Gnosticism would have affected other uh, letters, but this is the first one to really, uh, I think that Paul uses language constantly around and, and to help define it, uh, and sort of the Greek thought of how the world really worked. Um, there was sort of a dual dualism between, um, the things that were of heaven and things that were philosophy, thought, the soul spirit, like all those things were sacred. And then there was the, the tangible physical, the body, time itself, like this profaneness of the earthly things. And so, um, and the superheroes were like the philosophers who could tap into the mind and connect with the, the uber spiritual, uh, in some ways, insider knowledge that not everybody had access to. And so, um, this, this was influential and it had some ties into Plato and some other things. And we're going to see actually Paul, I think, um, poke, poke a little bit at some of this philosophy. And so, um, the, the, the idea that the sort of 
separating dualism out of the, the, the things of, of earth and the physical world and the things of the spiritual world. And I think Paul, um, through his language, is going to kind of deal with a little bit of this false understanding of of the world which i mean honestly i think we still see to this day i think the the some bright morning when this life is over i'll fly away the sort of escapism of uh, of the world and like i can't wait to be in heaven and everything in the physical world is just like eh, it's perishing and we'll move on from it one day i don't think i think the the understanding in scripture is a little bit more nuanced of how heaven and earth ultimately kind of collide. And, and when we pray like thy kingdom come, um, we're not praying to escape, but we're praying for a renewal or ultimately uh, a new heaven and new earth to uh, be established together. Something else you probably noticed as you read through Colossians or maybe to pay attention to is that we're starting with in Paul's later writings to see a pattern Paul usually has an issue he's addressing, but he always starts with the person and character of God as revealed through Christ. So once he gets that foundation set, then he starts to talk about the practical, how we live as a result of that. But we'll see that pattern as we talk through Colossians as well. So standard greeting, yep. uh, Paul's in prison, Timothy's still hanging out with him. And then uh, Paul's thankful for this church. And, and it's important to remember, Paul has never met this church um, that that we know of, uh, that the gospel um, somehow through Epaphras, and Epaphras has preached the gospel to this, this town maybe, uh, that the gospel has borne fruit and is increasing among them and into the whole world. And he's just thankful that they show love to brothers and sisters. And I think Paul even starts setting up a little bit of this hook uh, for them, this sort of like, and, and you guys desire like all the knowledge and wisdom which would have been language that they would have understand. And, um, but uh, this idea that they would bear fruit and increase in knowledge, be strengthened, endure in patience with joy and giving thanks. And he uses all this idea, but he also points out sort of the, a little bit of the nature of the gospel of sort of going, yes, but this, this, this is a past tense thing, but you, he has delivered you from darkness to light. He has not elevated. Uh, this is not some elevated state to be, to be earned. Like you have this now in the world. And so I'm thankful for you. I'm glad this is happening. And, and, and just, yeah, this sort of opening sort of sense of thankfulness for in some ways strangers to him this initial prayer paul prays for the colossians is similar to ephesians in some ways but i think it's focused around what's going to be addressed in colossians and i can just imagine that paul spent time praying about what to write to this church in Colossae. And with that on his mind, this prayer overflowed with the same theme. And I think the last couple lines in this prayer are worth repeating slowly because the imagery is just amazing that he has delivered us, you and me from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. So we have gone from dark to light, from the kingdom of evil to the kingdom of Christ, where we find redemption and forgiveness. Yep. And to a people that struggle with um, the, the almost like two realms of the world, that there's the invisible and the visible, that there's the heaven and then there's the earth, which is profane and heaven's the sacred. I think Paul goes off as clear as he possibly can right from the get go here that, that in Jesus, he is over all of the things, not just the invisible, the heavenly, the sacred stuff, but the earth, the visible, the stuff of this world, like all creation is held together in him. And, and Paul's working hard against this dualism to show that Jesus truly is the Lord of all of the things. And, and sort of this unified reign of Jesus. And, and that not mm-hmm. only that, but he's reconciled all things. 
in his body of flesh, a, a sort of unique phrase to this letter. And, and I, I think when you start dealing with the profane, Jesus, Paul's got to drive home too. like Jesus came in a physical form and took on a body, which we'll, we'll deal with the body conversation in a second. Um, the, the, in a world that had a bit of a low view about the body and that Paul is working to say that Jesus is working in and through the physical world to redeem both the physical and the spiritual. And, and so remain steadfast towards that. The word all is shows up seven times in these five verses, and Paul's emphasis here with it starting and ending with Christ is so that all of what we do flows out of an understanding that Christ is over all and rules all, and this is foundational for us now to understand that it all centers around and revolves around and begins and ends with Jesus Christ. And Paul even points out his own suffering is is sort of connected to uh, the the actual God of the universe. Like in his own suffering, he is filling up what is lacking. He is uh, connected to that, and his suffering show off more of Christ. And he starts speaking about the mystery again, which is a is a big concept of Gnostics. This idea of mystery that this mystery is being revealed, and it's Jesus. And and I think that's where Paul sort of like he keeps giving these like little hooks and then changing it. It's like and then there was a mystery. But it's not a secret insider knowledge. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. And when we all have this, we all have access to this wisdom. Everyone can be mature. And this is not just for some, but for all. This is no hidden knowledge. This is God revealing himself to all of humanity. And and yeah, and Paul's Paul, who this group he hasn't met, not just in Colossae, but Laodicea, he desires to be knitted together. And once again, he starts talking about and then there's hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge but it's available for you all full assurance of it. Like there's no secrecy to that. All, all the understanding and knowledge of Christ. And so, uh, and, and, and so Paul keeps setting up this idea. And even when he wraps up the soul section, he's like, I'm not there in body, but I'm with you in spirit. And I think Paul's even toying with the idea of Gnosticism there. And so, um, yeah, this idea of like, there, there is this true spiritual reality, but it's fully knowable in, 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 in Christ. And so, yeah, it's such a, it's such a big anti-Gnostic kind of teaching. So I, I really enjoy kind of like working through this with you, Chris, because I think like in this section, I read a totally different thing. Not that what you said isn't right, but I like how the Lord speaks to us in different ways. But what, what I really saw from this is Paul's longing and call to minister to the church leads to his rejoicing in the midst of struggle. Yep. So the lesson or the understanding that I kind of pulled out of it is that this is a good passage for those of us who are in any sort of ministry, whether vocational or we're a Bible study leader or we do kids Sunday school, Paul rejoices is when he struggles for the sake of benefiting the church. And his emphasis is that his struggles, he struggles with Christ's energy in order that the people he serves may fully understand the gospel. So to have this heart and conviction, even as for those of us who are serving others, requires our own vibrant relationship with God and also requires prayer for the people we serve. And so I think this is a great model for us to look at when we think of the places and people we are serving. Yeah, and I, I don't want to... Um... I agree with all that. I, I also don't want my interpretation to be not practical. And so, um, in, in the same way, like I think people's sometimes there's like, well, truth's not totally knowable or like, yeah, I know a little bit about Bible, but like, I'll never know it like this person or something like that. Like, I think that's also what Paul's dealing with. Of going, yeah. no, truth is absolutely knowable. It's fully there in Jesus. And so, um, any sort of sense of like, I, I can't understand what the world is truly, truly like Paul's going, no, you can, because Christ is over all things and has shown up. And not only that, and dwells but, within you. Yeah. But not only that, but it's not, there's no like super knowledge that some people get and other people don't like this is fully accessible to all people, which 
culturally for them is a big deal, less about us where we have phones in our hands and have access to all sorts of information. But, um, the, the ability of saying like, there's no super Christians and lesser Christians. Like we all ultimately have access to by the spirit. Yeah. And so, um, and then sort of this conversation about alive in Christ. Uh, so he says, see that no one deceives you, which contextually about this Greek philosophy, no one s- deceives you by this philosophy. Um, and going back to that, that conversation about the body, if you think this physical world is um, something that is of no value, it's sort of um, profane versus the the sacred, the the real things of life. Well, you kind of end up in two camps. One one camp where you say like, well, the body doesn't matter. We can do whatever we want with it. So we might as well eat, drink, be merry, enjoy the things of this life with our bodies, even if we still kind of keep focused on on the truest true. Uh, and then the other camp said, well, if the body's profane and we need to like put it under as of strict a control as we can so it doesn't get in the way of our pursuit of of what is the most true and so and that's called asceticism when paul's going to deal with I, I think both camps particularly asceticism but i think both camps as he goes and so paul starts highlighting the, the that, that in christ the fullness of god dwelt bodily and then so going to the cross dying on the cross for you in body jesus dwelt with the flesh and and it's not about asceticism or licentiousness and like i think paul's taking the idea of body and going no 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 jesus was in body he he died in your body so that with jesus buying dying he also deals with the sins of the heart and the body and like the mind and the body and he redeems all of us like there's sort of a unifying part of that like we don't need to prove super spirituality with our body and anything like that 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 christ redeems all those things through his flesh and so um i think paul's still dealing with this like don't don't think that flesh and body and physical world is bad. Jesus came into it and had to in order to, to ultimately redeem what he desires, which is all of us. And Paul brings up baptism here to argue that point. Baptism is this outward physical act of our commitment to Christ. And we go under the water when we are baptized, right. which really represents a death under the waters of judgment. And then we can come out as a new person representing the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we also get to participate in. So Paul is starting to make this move towards, now that you understand the supremacy of, supremacy of Christ, when you understand all of this about him and his work, you're going to walk in him instead of religious rituals and practices. Yep. So let no one disqualify you. And so um, Paul's kind of dealing with these religious practices and, um, and, and, and it might be dealing with the different accusations of both those camps upon religious practices or not. And, um, and, and I think it's, it's dealing with like, look, like, those are shadows and and they, maybe they pointed towards what it mattered the most. And actually he's using very Plato language there. This is sort of the language Plato used around his whole giant cave analogy uh, around reality. And so uh, Paul's almost like saying, it's not about what Plato says. It's all about Jesus. And even the practices, like it's, it's about the substance. It's about the mm-hmm. real things of life. And uh, if you're doing it for the shadow, then you've missed the point. It's about the substance. So um, avoid the asceticism of the Greek world that says, do not handle, do not touch, do not taste. Avoid the, those things. Like go after the reality of this world, what is true. And, 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 and what is true is that the things of this world are not things to there is idolatry certain certainly but but the physical world is not something to like try to escape from it is something that jesus is doing the work to reconcile all things in him around and so yeah sometimes we confuse works-based salvation and works as a fruit of salvation so there is an expectation of a lifestyle change and fruit of being saved and transformed by christ but we are saved by grace and grace alone we are not 
we're not saved because we accepted the gospel and gave up smoking or accepted the gospel and read through the whole Bible. So where do you look at yourself or where do you look at others and project works outside of grace on them or expect them to do some sort of thing as a form of salvation rather than as fruit of their salvation? And then Paul will transition. I think he once again, he sets up his audience a bit. He's he's sort of like, okay, set your mind on the things above and you don't get caught up in the affairs of the world. Like your life has been hidden. And so Paul, okay, what does that look like? What does it look like to set our mind on things above? Which is a phraseology they probably would have understood. And he's like, well, there's an old self and it's the earthly thing, self-gratification, relational strife, all those things. Great. Okay. But what's the new self? What's the heaven? What does it really look like to focus on the things above? Is it transcendental? Is it deep philosophy? All the things they would have defined. And Paul goes, well, it's compassion and kindness, meekness, gentleness. And and like most of all, it's love, love others. Like this is the heavenly, this is the new self. It's not mm-hmm. escapism. It's not any of that. It is putting on Christ, like do it all for Jesus and let the word dwell in you richly, all this sort of deep kind of things that Paul says about the community. But in some ways they're, they're relational, they're practical, they're sort of, um, uh, experiential for the people to, 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 to walk into. So Paul has just talked about the fact that works don't have anything to do with salvation, but then he instructs them in, in some works of the Christian life. And this is centered around thankfulness in our interactions with others. And let's not miss that, that the fruit and the lifestyle of those who have been saved is that of joy and service. And we can only really do this when we understand who saved us and how we have been saved. These behaviors that Paul points out don't come from within us, but from the Holy Spirit who lives within us. And it may seem just like a minor difference in words or understanding, but our understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit in us and through us and us being raised with Christ is going to significantly impact our approach in dealing with sin and in the way we love others. So Proverbs 1, somewhere in the middle. <laughs> one, somewhere in the middle. So we see the personification of wisdom. She calls out, not just whispers, and she offers herself to anyone who wants her, but then when they reject her, she rejects them in turn. Yeah. And it just definitely has some Jeremiah overtones to me. Yeah. Like, listen to the word of the Lord, repent. If you don't, you hate knowledge and you don't fear the Lord. And guess what? God laughs when disaster strikes you, which feels so, oh, it, it just racks you a little bit to be like God laughing at sort of the, the, the downfall of his people. But uh, next week, what should we look for? So Jeremiah chapter 10, we are going to read about a comparison between man-made gods and Yahweh and consider about this with our modern gods. You know, it's easy to think of idols of like Baal or Asherah, like actual physical idols, but our modern gods are consumerism or comfort or success and see how those gods compare to Yahweh in that in that verse. And then we are going to start James next week, along with a couple other books. But James is a different style of letter than the others we've read so far in the New Testament. So do a bit of research on who James is and learn a little bit about how to read New Testament wisdom literature compared to the epistles that we've been focusing on. Yeah. And when we walk through the gospels, I I tried to emphasize that sometimes like the context of some of these Old Testament quotes really mattered. And well, I mean, with Jesus quoting Jeremiah a lot, there'll definitely be times you're reading through, you're like, oh, like, I feel like I remember Jesus saying that. And then when you come across that, like one of those moments go, okay, like what is the context Jeremiah said here? And how does that help like influence what, what a first century leader or whatever, maybe the temple leaders would have heard. So like when, when you get to Jeremiah and he's talking about the den of robbers and like related to the destruction of the temple and Jeremiah is just full on condemning saying, this is why all these, this is why the Babylonians are here. This is why God has forsaken us, all this kind of stuff. So when Jesus shows up and starts quoting that to the leaders in the temple, 
I mean, you got to imagine now reading through Jeremiah. So as you're reading and you get these, these moments, take, take, a, take just the pause to go, okay, like if I, if I was one of the people hearing Jesus say these things to me or teach this thing to me, like, how would I, how would I hear that? Um, I think it helps paint the picture. Let me say more. something with that real quick. If you don't automatically read that and recognize the reference. If you have a Bible with cross references, you could probably find notes in there and you have time. Look for when like there's a Jeremiah verse and then the cross reference is somewhere in one of the gospels. And then you can make that connection that way. And our hope is you've read the three of the four gospels now. So hopefully you're able to make those moments, but I understand the cross references are always helpful. And yeah, to this day, I mean, I'm still learning more and more and finding moments where it's like, Oh, I hadn't realized that came from that. As we talked about uh, in Ephesians last week of the armor of God. It's like, oh, like that whole thing is in Isaiah. And then New Testament, uh, the audience of James uh, makes reading James that much more complicated. Like how, how Jewish or how mixed is this audience actually meant to be? And also what does James mean by works versus Paul? Paul Paul uses the term works of the law, but James doesn't use that term and he uses it a little differently. And so um, where it feels like maybe these authors are contradicting themselves, maybe they're actually not. And so um, as you do a little bit of the research, try to think through some of those things as you sort of deal with like, all right, the audience, the, the questions of, of how they would hear some of these words uh, as you start reading. So that's it for me. Thanks, Thanks. everybody.